And hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting again on the air at Saga 960 AM out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and on the Big Talker Network down in North Carolina. A couple great things uh, to talk about today. It's been a while since I've been here. I know that uh, David Clement, my uh, partner in crime, has been holding the mic steady. I've been able to give you guys some great content talking to our colleague Bill. But it's me, Yael Lasansky. I'm right back here at the mic. Uh, I was off in Italy there for a bit, enjoying uh, Tuscany uh, with the family. Uh, many of you are probably enjoying some some nice summer vacations uh, right now. It's it's a great time to go out there and, and enjoy the summer and the sun. Not a good time to enjoy those gas prices if you happen to be driving. Uh, we actually cut up our journey. I know we'll talk about it uh, next week with David, but it was able to cut up our journey by taking the train uh, putting our car on the train, actually, called the Autozug. Uh, so actually putting our vehicle there on the back, hitching it, and taking the long train journey down to Italy, uh, particularly to the port city of Livorno. Uh, it was around a 13-hour ride in total, which is uh, you know, probably six hours longer than it should be when you're just driving. But, you know, that's that's kind of the, the whole point of taking the train, is you can take it a bit slow. You can try to go at your own pace. So that was uh, very enjoyable. A small old vacation was still working, writing articles, um, you know, phoning stuff in and still editing the program to get it out to you for Saga and for the Big Talker Network and also over there on our podcast. If you guys don't know, this is a podcasting 2.0 compliant program as well. So you can download a modern podcast app like Fountain or Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z, and you guys can actually uh, have a little integrated Bitcoin wallet and send small uh, small little amounts called Satoshis while you're listening. Uh, also, Boost, Boostagrams, you can send messages. A huge proponent of that. I know it's, uh, it's not mainstream just yet, but I think we'll get there. So there's a lot of things to cover. Uh, David is going to be uh, brought into the studio a bit later for segments two and three. Uh, he's going to be interviewing our guest, Mark Calabria. Mark Calabria was uh, the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. He was also a chief economist for uh, former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence. And uh, this is, uh, you know, the opportune time to be talking about housing prices, uh, the housing market and what's happening. Uh, So Mr. Calabria, who is now over there at the Cato Institute, uh, knows a lot about this. He knows a lot about what's happening. And he knows from a regulatory side sort of what's happening and the incentives that have been built up in the housing stock, in the housing industry, and perhaps uh, some things that we could do in order to make sure that we can uh, cool the brakes a bit or uh, bring down the prices of homes in the long term, uh, obviously by building more houses. So that will be a conversation with Mark Calabria. That will be coming up after the first break Uh, David will be conducting that one. He did that one when I was in Italy. So uh, props to him. Props to David for continuing that story. Uh, But we got something big, guys, that just happened. uh, Happened this week. Um, It's been a long time coming. Pretty much, I I couldn't tell you the episode number. What are we now? I think episode 129 is this one. You can probably go back and I would say probably episode 10, uh, we kind of predicted that this would happen. We're talking about Juul, the e-cigarette manufacturer put together in Silicon Valley, uh, hyped a lot through uh, the commercials of the tobacco control crowd, and a big favorite and uh, market-dominant 
in the vaping industry. Uh, so the Food and Drug Administration has issued their order denying the claim that Juul uh, will be able to sell on the market. What that really means with their market denial order is ostensibly they need to remove all of their products from the market today. Meaning Juul, Juul Pods will no longer be for sale in the United States. There's still an avenue of lawsuits, of trying to appeal. This is likely going to be a very, very arduous process, uh, but this has been a long time coming. And a lot of people who have not been aware of this fact, you might have seen some of this on social media, people commenting about how uh, Biden can't get a handle on gas prices, but he can definitely take away your jewel. So this is, it's a long time coming because the Food and Drug Administration has really set this process up over the last three to four years. Uh, they have this entire process called the pre-market uh, tobacco manufacturers um, sort of application that you need to do. It's for the marketing of your product. You need to be able to, cl uh, to prove to the government that your product is somehow going to help public health. And it's a very Byzantine process, very, very complicated. And the FDA asks for all types of different documents, and this is for every single vape product on the market. It's all the liquids, all the juices, all the devices, all the burners, all of them. And Juul was not able to pass muster. Even as a multi-billion dollar corporation that sells many of these that you've probably seen in your convenience store at 7-Eleven at the gas station, they were not able to pass muster. Uh, this is the Food and Drug Administration's modus operandi. They are not big fans of harm-reducing e-cigarettes and vaping devices. They've only approved a handful, and only one actually that's not owned by any tobacco company that's Enjoy. Uh, just a, a small one you might have also seen at the gas station. But this is uh, only available in tobacco flavor. So the FDA has not yet approved any non-tobacco vaping flavors. And yeah, this is going to be very harmful for many of those former smokers who've switched. They found their, their great vaping device. You know, they've been able to move away from the, the pack of cigs that they used to get every morning or every week. And now that option is off the table, literally ripped off the shelf. So definitely a black eye for many, many different people throughout the United States, and surely also with, uh, you know, the public health establishment, because many people have brought this up as their big issue. They've made it this whole thing about kids, even though it's illegal for kids to purchase these products, uh, because there's been a, a small black market. And the latest figures actually are very interesting. It's actually 0.6% of... Those who are under 18 uh, who used a Juul device in the last 30 days, somehow this provides the scientific rigor to justify pulling them off of the market for all of the adult users who are responsibly trying to quit smoking. Yeah, we've gone on and on about this. I know we've done a good number of interviews uh, here on the program on Consumer Choice Radio, and there's a couple of media hits uh, that we have over uh, on ConsumerChoiceCenter.org where you guys can find that. I was on uh, CBS News Radio, uh, sort of the radio roundup that goes out on the private radio stations. Uh, I think on the Big Talker Network, they have the Town Hall Radio, so I probably wasn't there, but uh, definitely it's on thousands of other stations throughout the U.S., so people were able to hear my uh, my comments about this and specifically just how poorly the FDA has handled stuff the past couple of years. 
everyone complains about the FDA. We always have like a present crisis, whether it's the baby formula, whether it's not approving COVID test until forever and, and everything related to the vaccines generally. There's so much that you can criticize the FDA, FDA for. This is kind of the problem when you give too much power to one executive agency. When one executive branch has too much power, when there is no great public process whereby uh, things can actually be held up under a scientific rigor or according to the rule of law, this is what you get, ruled by bureaucrats. So I hope that uh, those who you know, have transitioned away from smoking or using vaping devices, uh, now the jewel's off the table, there are others. Uh, we don't know how long because, again, these uh, PMTA uh, application processes are very complicated. We don't know how many will survive. Uh, we don't know how much the, the vice of the uh, FDA will clamp down on many of those. Uh, hopefully there will be some alternatives. But yeah, that's an unfortunate, uh, sad state of affairs when it comes to harm reduction policy in the United States. Um, I know that up in Canada, uh, things aren't faring much better. There's a tax uh, that has been uh, proposed and likely going through. Uh, my colleague David has written about it in the uh, Financial Post, so we can actually all, all link to that for the show notes over there on consumerchoiceradio.com. But, uh, you know, is what a summer for you know consumer topics and consumer issues. Uh, everyone's thinking about and talking about gas prices. A uh, little anecdote, you know, we uh, talked about driving, taking the train. Uh, we actually drove back uh, from Italy and uh, noticed that the a gas price in the the country of Slovenia was much much cheaper. Uh, it was it was around uh, one euro fifty a gallon. Still, or, sorry, a liter. Still very high compared to the United States and, and to Canada. But uh, this is uh, much much cheaper than in Italy or in Austria. And I I figured, oh, this is great. I'll go and stock up, get my uh, gas tank full. And I I asked a friend later why it was so cheap. I thought that maybe there was a good hookup, some kind of great contract, you know, with some oil manufacturer somewhere. Apparently not. Uh, apparently the government has uh, instituted a cap on the price of, uh, of gas for the next couple of months. Uh, great economic idea, folks. Uh, only going to make people go out and hoard that gas. And uh, I actually have the incentive to drive down there and go pick up some more when I'm out because uh, I think it's about a one euro per liter difference, but four bucks a gallon difference. Uh, hello. <laughs> Of course, I'm going to go down there. So yeah, with the gasoline, with the the vapes being taken off the shelves, uh, everything related to the highways, I, there's just so much that's happening for consumer topics. I know there there are a lot of people who are trying to get into summer and trying to enjoy uh, what is happening. I mean, thankfully, this is the the less restricted summer after COVID, so people are able to enjoy going to the pools and able to travel and uh, not have to wear a mask and all the rest. Uh, but this is very good. It's good for individual consumers. It means that we're able to get out there. We're able to, you know, use our wallets for what we're supposed to be using it for, buying stuff, doing stuff, having fun, enjoying life. And uh, good to know that things are actually changing there. Um, obviously, can't talk about uh, finances or consumer stuff without talking about the, the crypto markets and Bitcoin, the prices uh, going down. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, consolidations and stuff. We can probably talk about it once David is back. Uh, but for those of you who are interested, uh, there's a couple things that we've written up on our website, just generally around regulation and things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff moving and shaking throughout the summer. Uh, I mean, also speaking of technology and regulation, we definitely have to keep an eye on these antitrust 
pieces of legislation pushed by Senator Amy Klobuchar. Uh, they've got their, their eyes set on Amazon. They've got their eyes set on Apple, uh, on Meta, on Google. Uh, they're trying to come after all of these companies for their own reason, and uh, we're we definitely keeping an eye out there. We'll put some articles out, some explainers over on our website too, because these are very important topics. I don't know if many people are following it day to day. You know, a lot of people are using it, and maybe you got you know your Instagram that you're flipping through right now, or looking at the Facebook feed, or something like that. But there are definitely many people in the political establishment that would like to part you from these social media networks, you from the innovative sites like Amazon, uh, supposedly for your benefit, which is obviously laughable. And there's um, there's probably going to be. Um, you know, some just terrible rhetoric that's given to us. We've already have one from uh, John Oliver, if you guys are familiar with this program. Uh, I think it's called Last Week Tonight over there on, on HBO. The grand comedians, isn't it funny, the grand comedians of our age uh, are seem more like political campaigners and advocates than they do, you know, comedians. They, I don't know what's happened. Something has changed. The journalists are themselves, you know, the comedians, and uh, the comedians have become, you know, the journos or the the political pundits nowadays. Uh, so John Oliver did one on antitrust, and it was obviously terrible um, writing up a response to that now. But, you know, this is something that we got to be vigilant for, guys. This is Consumer Choice Radio. The whole point is, is trying to empower consumers uh, to know that there are great innovative technologies that we love and we support, and we have to make sure that there are smart policies so that we can continue to use them and so that the environment can continue to improve because consumers deserve choice. We deserve to be able to use the products that we want to ingest what we want to be able to use that vape device or log onto that social media network or buy things from Amazon or some Shopify site or whatever else. Uh, there's a lot out there. You know, this is kind of the great marvel of open markets, of open trade. Hopefully, the inflation uh, will not be so bad that it will keep many people from doing this. Uh, but overall, it's a great consumer summer, guys. Hope you guys are able to enjoy it. Uh, get out there, go see your friends and family. Enjoy as much as you can. Uh, we'll be back in the fall, obviously, with plenty of political debates. But for now, we're enjoying it, and uh, we're definitely going to be here to discuss it much more on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, wish you guys the best. Uh, we're going to go to our interview with Mark Calabria. Coming up now, stay tuned. This is Consumer Choice Radio. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I have the pleasure uh, of introducing our next guest and chatting with him about housing. He is a senior advisor at the Cato Institute. He was formerly the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency and served as the chief economist for former vice president, Mike Pence. Mark Cal Calabria, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. It, it's a real pleasure to be here. So you obviously spent a lot of time um, working specifically on housing in, in, in your previous role. From what you can see now, how, how, what is the housing situation in the United States? We, we, we see the headlines. We see people talking about skyrocketing prices in markets that aren't necessarily where you would expect. It's not just New York and San Francisco anymore. 
Um, how widespread is this getting? Uh, you know, that's really the biggest change. I mean, other than just magnitude, I mean, we really over the past year, I mean, this all really started obviously in the middle of COVID. But for instance, over the past year, you've seen prices nationally increase by, by 20%, which is really just unprecedented. Even in the middle of the 2000s, we weren't getting, you know, this type of price appreciation. And the other big change relative to the 2000s is in the 2000s, we had really big price run-ups in you know, San Francisco or Phoenix, Las Vegas, but places like Texas or Idaho, um, you know, many places in the middle of the country were pretty modest. I mean, it was low price appreciation. Uh, and so the real big change this time around is, you know, whether it's Texas or whether it's Florida, places where there have historically been, you know, a lot of building and relative to bodies depreciation have, have, have exploded in price just like everywhere else. Uh, I mean, there may be very few, I mean, you'd have to look at it at a Detroit or, or a Buffalo before you'd find someplace mm -hmm. where it's actually been weak prices. And so this is a much more uh, geographic expansion in the housing market than we saw last time around. And what do you think some of the causes of, of this are? Like, what is, is it, is it an undersupply problem? Is it, um, is it cheap money flooding the market? Is it, I mean, there are a variety of, of reasons that people throw out there, but I'm curious as to what your take is. What makes this different than before? Well, in some ways it is all of the above. And there are a lot of parallels with 2008, some of which we'll get to. But the primary difference is just the migration patterns. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the hottest cities housing-wise in the last two years has been Boise. And that's, for instance, really been driven by California migration. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when remote work really became an option for a lot of people, you know, they looked at it and said, I don't want to pay these New York, San Francisco rents. Uh, you know, I want to be somewhere I can be outdoors, where I can, you know, hike and have a lot of options. So you really saw a lot of movement out of cities. Um, you know, people wanted to be at least a flight away from or a couple of hours, no worse than a couple of hours drive away from their employer. Because, you know, in many cases you thought you might get pulled back uh, to work. You never knew and you might have to come in. So, you know, really these things were a couple of hour airplane flight from New York or San Francisco were really the places that kind of took off. There was a certain amount of amenities. And the thing to keep in mind is if you've ever been to a place like Boise, there's not a lot of pre-existing housing stock. <laughs> so, you know, in, fortunately, in places like Boise, you can still build, mm -hmm. but you had a lot of supply chain disruptions. Uh, you may recall, for instance, in the middle of 2020, you know, a lot of the lumber mills just had to shut down. They didn't have the OSHA, facility, the OSHA uh, regulations in place where they could have people actually come. So yep. they became impossible. Uh, this to get lumber. Uh, you and know, of course, they awesome. weren't uh, they weren't importing it from Canada. Given Canada, that, well, we, we were, but there were some tariffs. And, yes, you, know, <laughs> you and I could talk Canadian stumpage fees for forever if we wanted. But all that said, um, you know, there really were a lot of supply chain disruptions. You eventually have kind of seen that shake off a little bit, and we, in fact, are today uh, building more houses than we've built since two thousand seven. So. The market started to come back. Uh, you also have to keep in mind, and especially in 2020, 
you had record low uh, existing homes be put on the market. And of course, it all makes sense. Who wants to have an open house in the middle of a pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of people were just like, okay, I'm not going to put my house on the market. Uh, as you talked about uh, or alluded to a little bit, kind of the easy money came from a number of sources. Obviously, we had the Federal Reserve cut rates uh, by a whole lot of M- mortgage-backed securities, MBS in 2020. That really flooded the market. We also sent people a lot of checks. There were a lot of relief checks. One of the interesting things about the housing market in 2020 and 2021 are just the just insanely high level of all cash purchases. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of 2020, you also were seeing very high percentage of sales that were sight unseen. I mean, maybe somebody got a video tour of the house. But, you know, you had people buying five, six million dollars, you know, hundred thousand million dollar houses without ever stepping a foot in them first. So crazy market really driven by uh, historically low supply with just a massive amount of demand. Um, Now, over the last two years, that's really started to um, that gap has started to narrow. So certainly, as I said, uh, both new construction has really started to pick up. Um, and people are starting to put their homes back on the market. It's still uh, existing supply is still tight historically, but mm-hmm. there's a lot more housing on the market now uh, than there was, say, in 2020. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. of course, there are some broader, longer term demand. You know, millennials are now really last couple of years been moving into like prime home buying age. And, and of course, it's kind of like almost you know, we talk about the baby boom and the baby bust. If you look at the demographics, the the you know the millennial cohort was just huge, so it really was going to have a big impact on the housing market whenever the millennials got to be that home buying age. So, strong demographics, loose money, um, strong income growth for certain parts of the uh, economy, uh, and then a, just a lot of migration trends where people started to move. And a big driver of this is, um, as well for some of this local things, is you know, if you're coming from a San Francisco or New York, you're used to paying kind of high house prices. You've got a higher income generally. And certainly most of 2020, employers were generally not making people take you know location pay cuts. Mm-hmm. And so where I'm getting at this is, you know, for a lot of, you know, San Franciscans going to a Boise and paying, you know, twice as much as what someone else they would have paid was not the same sort of sticker shock. So you really had all that money flow into these local markets. Uh, and, but, you know, the plus is that we've started to see this balance out. Uh, we're not going to continue to see double digit uh, appreciation like this in most markets. Uh, I think even over the next 12 to 18 months, we'll definitely see some markets where prices may even fall. So we're at an inflection point for for good or bad. Yeah. Okay. So I I do have to ask you one other question um, because you mentioned, you mentioned differences between 07, 08 and now. um, And I'm sure for some of our older listeners that would uh, raise some, some red flags. I know the the Fed has increased, um, increased rates. There's, talk of a recession there seems to be a lot of uh in the media world a lot of talk about economic turmoil um what parallels can you draw between 07 08 and what we have now or what makes now different whether people should be as worried or less worried in regards to a a potential kind of housing collapse per se i mean there are reasons to both be more worried and reasons to be less worried so let's kind of 
started pulling those apart. And you keep in mind, a lot of the driver in the mid 2000s was very easy monetary policy as well. So a lot of the seeds in 2008 came out of the Fed's response to 9-11 and the dot-com bubble bursting. And so you had these years where the Fed just flooded the, the mortgage market with money. And in fact, before 2020, 2003 was the peak year for mortgage activity. Because mm-hmm. everybody and their brother refinanced them. Um, and then you started to see the Fed start raising rates uh, in 2004. And they really didn't stop raising rates till 2006. And it's really 2006, after those two years of rate increases, where you started to see the market really turn, prices started going down. So if you had to you maybe put it in parallel, you know, where I think we are today relative to 2008 is we're kind of like in 2005, if you think okay. about it this way. Um, there, because partly there, it takes a while for sellers, certainly builders and sellers to adjust. Um, you know, might be a shocker, but, uh, you know, when you thought your house was worth X, you know, it takes people six months to a year. You know, you might put it on the market. You might not get what you want. You might take it back off. You might make some differences. So it really does take, you know, six to 12 months for most sellers to really kind of, you know, just accept the reality that the home was not worth what they thought they could get for it. Mm-hmm. That's an adjustment process. And we saw that throughout like 2007. Um, and so you saw that kind of aspect of it. Um, certainly, you know, we don't have the same sort of connections to our financial system in the same way. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate today about mortgage credit quality. Now, um, I'm of the view that subprime mortgages never really went away. They just went into HUD, FHA. Um, and it's about the same size. I mean, FHA is about 1.3 trillion, uh, and that's about what subprime was, you know, in the last crisis. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some changes that FHA is a a fixed rate product. You know, there aren't these exploding arms. There aren't these no documentation. But most of FHA is pretty poor credit quality in the borrower. Um, very little, if any, equity in, in the house. Uh, which works fine when markets go up, but when they turn, it gets a little bit uh, dicey and then very high debt burden. So I, you know, I recognize I'm probably a little bit of an outlier, but I think the credit quality in the market is certainly a concern. I certainly should say you'll hear commentators often point to, you know, average credit scores and things like that. Um, The average borrower is going to be fine. I mean, the average borrower paid throughout 2008, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really... These crises are not caused by the average person. They're caused by a small tail amount, you know, really. People who are over leveraged. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it only really takes, you know, five, six, seven percent of borrowers to get in trouble for the system to have trouble because there's not much capital in the system. Mm-hmm. So um, the pros and cons, well, you know, depending on your outlook, uh, instead of having much of this held within the financial system, uh, 90 plus percent of this is now either held by HUD at FHA or by Fannie and Freddie. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's certainly a much bigger risk to the taxpayer today than it was in 2008. Okay. Now, the flip, the flip, so that's a concern uh, for those of us who don't want to have the taxpayer pay a lot of money from the mortgage market. That's a problem. Uh, certainly in terms of a financial crisis aspect, 
um, because the essentially because the lenders are protected from that loss today, it's a lot less of a threat to lenders to the to the mortgage industry than it was in 2008. So if you're a mortgage lender, you know, you're going to have to lay some people off and that's going to be unpleasant. And you're not going to make money like you were. But the threats of like widespread failures in the mortgage industry, we're not going to see the same sort of repeat because unfortunately the taxpayer already owns that risk. Yep. Uh, it is important to keep in mind, um, you know, people tend to spend um, some amounts of their housing wealth on consumption. You know, historically, the estimates are like, you know, every dollar richer you are in housing wealth, you spend another three to four cents. And that might not sound like a lot, but when you add up, you know, the, yeah. the trillions of dollars in housing wealth, it can really make a big driver into consumption. And so when the housing market turned, started in 2006, it really led to part of that big decline in spending that we saw in 2008, 2009. So I am worried a little bit that, you know, if we are to see a major change in house prices, that that could really hit consumer spending, um, you know, in construction employment, which, you know, we've yep. recovered all the residential construction employment we lost during COVID, but, you know, you were really at risk that if the housing market turns, if builders pull back, you could see a lot of people get laid off. And, and obviously that's obviously horrible for them, but it's got bigger knockoff effects on the economy in terms of uh, reductions in spending uh, and reductions of activity. So I think there are a lot of red flags. And lastly, I would say, you know, I think one of the harder things for people to understand is you often hear commentators say, well, you know, supply is really tight, so therefore prices can't decline. So let me take a second and explain why I think it's just the opposite. Um, I just, uh, I do, I do have to interrupt you just for us to absolutely. quickly cut to break. Um, but I do want you to finish that thought when we return here. Perfect. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am joined by Mark Calabria. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you before the break, Not but you were, you were just addressing uh, what I assume may be the myth that because supply is tight, prices won't go down. So uh, what say you to, to those political commentators? So it really is a myth. And if we think about this, you know, go back to our Econ 101 classes we might have taken in college. Uh, you know, supply is tight. And the way economists re refer to that is supply is inelastic. And it's commonly the case that the tighter supply is in a market, the more prices go up and down, the more volatility you get. And so, in fact, the same supply conditions that contributed to just record increases in prices are actually the same supply conditions that will result in record declines, declines in prices. So you really are in an environment of greater volatility. Uh, of course, nobody thinks that prices are going to go to zero, and, and that's not what we're, what we're talking about. What we're talking about is in an environment where prices can quickly shoot up is the exact same sort of supply environment where prices can shoot down. Um, and again, it's, yeah. Do you mean that in the sense, uh, so like, if, so there's tight supply if rates are going up and I'm, I'm drawing on some reference sure. from Canada because there was some survey data recently where they said 20% of homeowners would be in a position where they may need to sell by virtue of financial stability if rates were to continue to increase? Is it a scenario where once rates get to a certain point, people who are maybe overstretched at low interest rates then flood the market with supply that brings down pricing? 
really a point where um, if you see demand pull back okay. um, because supply is pretty limited. And again, this is really something that works through the demand side of this, that because supply is essentially you know, inelastic, the, the demand curve when it falls uh, covers more ground. Uh, ah. And so, you know, if you just think about it, it's because um, because because the market's not going to adjust via quantity of supply, the market's going to adjust through price. Mm -hmm. So a tighter supply is a market in which almost all of your change in demand shows up in price changes. Uh, and so certainly the rate increases will pull back on demand because, of course, you know, what you can afford as a monthly payment is a function of the price and the interest rate. So, uh, you know, and given the underwriting standards, you're going to qualify for a certain certain monthly payment. You're going to you're going to you can't really borrow more than a monthly payment of, of X. And so if rates go up. What you can bid goes down. So some of this is that that your ability to bid for a higher price will contract. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a big part of it is just, you know, you think about, um, you know, if you, you know, if you're if you're bidding on something, you're at an auction and you and the other guy are keep keep bidding. Well, you know, your ability of what both of you can bid is going to be a function of how much money you walk in there with. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell both of you, well, I'm going to cut in half the money you have to spend or rather, as we'd see in the mortgage market, the money you could borrow, then you can bid less, and that will show up in prices. Um, certainly, uh, you know, if you start to see employment decline, so part of this will be, if we do see a slowdown in building, you know, you'll see losses in construction jobs that will flow through the other jobs. And it's still the case, this was the case in 2008, it'll be the case in the future, that the number one really disruptor in terms of inability to pay your mortgage is job-related. Yeah. Uh, and so if you think about it, you might have bought this house for, let's say you let's say you bought a house for five hundred thousand dollars a year ago. You got a three percent mortgage. You lose your job. Well, you know, if you can sell the house, like let's say you're in a horrible situation, there's no way to make it work. You're going to be forced to sell that house. Well, you might have been able to pay five hundred thousand for it. But the guy who's going to buy it from you. They're going to yeah. get, they're, they're not going to get a 3% mortgage. They're going to get a 6% mortgage. So you will have to take a hit on what you sell it for. Uh, and of course, if we see all those job losses at once, then you start to see a lot of that housing come back onto the market. So, you know, and this is also related to me. I think it was absolutely the right thing to do when the pandemic hit that we provided forbearance for people. They had to pay the mortgage back, but you could get a pause on your payments in the middle of 2020. Um, because a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, but that kept housing off the market. Normally, you know, even in a great economy, there's a lot of job churn. There are still people who lose their jobs, unfortunately. There are people who may sell for a number of reasons. You know, people people who get divorced tend to sell their homes, unsurprisingly. Um, so there's a whole host of reasons that people sell in, in all sorts of all sorts of economic environments. Uh, and so when the market's down and rates are high, you still have these um, non-economic, sometimes economic reasons to sell, but they start to put more pressure on the market. And so we held a lot of inventory off the market in terms of we simply let people basically stay in their home. And in fact, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was running Fannie and Freddie when the crisis hit. We had about 200,000 households in March 2020 that were already way into the foreclosure process. So these were 
of borrowers who hadn't paid in like a year or two. Yeah. Very little chance they were ever going to get back in their, in their feet on feet again. But because of the pandemic, we pressed pause. We're like, okay, I mean, the courts had shut down. Even if you wanted to foreclose on somebody in March 2020, you couldn't. Yeah. So, you know, so the point being is that's housing that was kept off the market. So that's kind of unwind that has been unwinding. So, you know, the long story short is we had a big gulp gulf between demand and supply that has been narrowing that will continue to narrow and as that gap narrows prices will moderate and fall in some markets i do, I do want to follow up with a with a local politics question because it is the 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 soup of the day for those of us who care about housing affordability is nimbyism yeah. um, its prominence um how and for for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that term nimbyism not in my backyard those are the the folks who oppose all sorts of development in virtually every neighborhood for any reason you can think of um how much of that is a problem especially in these high demand markets where density is needed you know it's almost a problem everywhere and and, and i certainly understand you know, anybody, I mean, I'm a homeowner. I understand concerns about neighborhood quality and you want, don't want a lot of density going in. But at the end of the day, I mean, people have to live somewhere and if jobs are going to be created somewhere and you want to live in an economy where there are jobs being created, which I'm very pro jobs being created. So I, I think that's, that's a great thing. We should want a strong economy. We should want opportunity. Uh, and we should want people to be able to move to opportunity. Uh, so certain certain cities will create jobs more actively than others. But if people can't move there, uh, I mean, we for you know we've seen this continued migration, for instance, from California to Texas, and a lot of it's almost exclusively, you know, inability. You might find a job in California, but you can't find a house. Yeah. And if you can't find a house, you're not going to stay there. Um, a lot of this has been just really extensive land use policies. Uh, a lot of this is very drawn out. If neighbors don't want it and they can sue and there's all sorts of environmental reviews and other vetoes in the process. So I really do think, I mean, this is mostly uh, a local issue. There are still places, I mean, the, the poster child for easy building is probably Houston where there, mm -hmm. there is no zoning. Um, but if you go every, you know, just because there's no zoning, you still don't see gas stations in the middle of residential neighborhoods in Houston. I mean, the same yeah. land economics works. You if you were going to run a business, a store, or gas station, you want to be on a main artery. That's 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 just common sense, common economics. So, you know, you really have seen these embrace, particularly in California, but it's spread to a lot of places where it's just such a crazy process. It takes years for the developer to get through the process. You, it's a lot of fees, a lot of, and it, and it, and it really has resulted. In a, in a huge underbuilding. So I know we're kind of in this weird spot where the housing market seems to be softening, it seems to be turning, and yet we're still not building enough housing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but so, uh, you know, and this is the really wild card, which is, you know, as rates go up, as the economy softens, I mean, will, will home builders pull back even if we're short? And part of this is because, you know, the home builders have to pay the market rate for the land. Yeah. And got, and if it's in, and they've got to you know go through the entitlement process where they can build on it, so certainly a number of places across America are trying to go through some efforts at reforming their zoning, which I think is important. Um, some of it is just providing certainty. Uh, you know, some states, localities, for instance, you can you can have what's called build by right, which is you know if you meet all the requirements and rules, you can build. 
a lot of other places, a lot of California, a lot of, San, you know, greater Bay Area, very little of it gets built by right. You have to run a gauntlet of, of hearings yeah. and meetings and, and everybody gets a veto. So my view is, you know, let's just decide what you can build. Let's decide what the standards are. Let's make them clear cut. You know, if you have areas where you want to say, you know, this is a nature preserve or this is historic preservation, then just say it, make it clear cut. Uh, and then let people build where you don't where otherwise. And so I just think it's um, we need to take the politics out of home building. It is it's just massively regulated at the state level, local level. Obviously, um, it differs in some places. I mean, still much of Texas you can build many places. You know, still much of the southeast. You know, Georgia you mm -hmm. can still build many places. And then a lot of New England, a lot of the Cali, you know, west west coast, very difficult to build. But I think this is a really pressing issue. Uh, it's made it very hard. You know, um, you know, it's not historically you may get up and move uh, to find a new job or, you know, you know, I grew up on a on, on a on a farm in Virginia. We actually do still have those. Um, and so the point being is it's not unusual to kind of grow up in a rural suburban area, move to the big city and make a lot more money and get a job. And we've made it far more difficult for people to do that now. Uh, and it limits opportunity. It limits the, di the, the dynamic growth of our economy. So I, this is really, to me, a huge pressing issue um, that fundamentally can only really be changed at the local level. And I do think it can be done in a way that brings people into the conversation where existing residents are part of the conversation. Uh, unfortunately, some of this is, is simply a um, anti-growth mentality, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think people and jobs are good things, but, you know, if you're living in a community where you think that people are just some blight on the environment and planet, then you're not going to really support housing or jobs. Uh, and I think we all need to make a better case of why, you know, people are important and jobs are important and growth is important. Yeah. And it's always funny because the, the arguments in favor of all of these restrictive zonings from an environmental perspective turn out to be the opposite of what is true because I've, i mean it should be intuitive if you can yeah. live closer to where you work and you don't have to commute um you're closer to where you eat where you shop where you grocery shop that limits the amount of emissions there are all sorts of other factors that play maybe public transit becomes an option for you because you're not 40 miles 50 miles away from your employer it's, um yeah. Yeah, it's you're 100 percent you're 100 percent right on that, and and of course you know I mean, uh, apartment living might not be right for everybody, but you know if you live in an apartment because of the density of it, the, the electricity, the heating, the cooling is like half the cost of a single family home. Yeah, uh, and so I'm all for choice. You know, find what makes sense for you, um, but a lot more people would choose to live in density in cities so they could be close to their jobs and many if those options were available. Uh, and and as you said, the driving, all of these things are 100% true, where California is the poster child of this, where, you know, you, you, you drive out to Stockton to yep. live and commute into the Bay Area, uh, and it really is so much worse for the environment. And as you've said, the, the irony is that um, people use the local environmental, like the California Environmental Quality Act is just such a veto over building, uh, and people hide behind behind the environmental laws in a way to stop construction that would be environmentally friendly. And it's, yeah. and it's, you know, so it really, many of these, um, many of the, the kind of sprawl type anti-growth 
things we see are really worse for the environment. Um, so I 100% the case, and I do think if we want to have a cleaner environment, reduce energy use, we don't need to mandate, but we need to allow more density in cities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mark, it has been a pleasure to have you on Consumer Choice Radio. Where can our listeners find uh, what you are up to these days? You can just go to, you know, Cato.org. You know, my, my page is there. My history of writings are up there. And, of course, you can always follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, it's M-A-R-K-C-A-L-A-B-R-I-A. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you again. I'm sure we're going to have to have you back uh, on. Hopefully it is not uh, a housing collapse episode, um, <laughs> but we will we'll certainly have you back on the program and we appreciate you for making the time. It's really my pleasure. Have a good one. Be well you as well. Mm-hmm.